Good morning, Boker Tov. It is great to be together again to study the Parsha, Parsha Perspectives for today. And this week we have the privilege of learning together Parsha's Kisava. I want to thank our generous sponsors for the year, my dear friends Becky and Avi Katz, and family in loving memory of Becky's father, David Grossman. Our learning should be Le'ilu Nishmas David Ben Menachem Manish. Thank you for your generosity. A reminder, the series is sponsored, but you can still sponsor individual classes. Please be in touch with our shul office. Before we begin our learning today, I want to... Um, I want to ask a request. Uh, I'm curious if anybody takes notes on our Parsha class or Amunashir or any of the other Shiurim. If you do, I would be grateful to be able to have a copy of those notes. I'm looking to be able to record in writing some of the things that we share. And if anyone is doing it already, it would be an enormous help to me. REG at brsonline.org. If you could email me at reg at brsonline.org, I would be deeply appreciative to you. Okay, let's get started. Our Parsha begins on page 1068 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. Parsha's Kisavo. And the Parsha has an enormous amount. It begins with Bikurim, makes its way all the way through the Tochacha. Obviously, we're limited in our time, so we'll see how far we get and how much we're able to learn together on this on this fine morning. Torah begins by telling us what will happen when you enter the land. Remember, Moshe is still delivering his monologue, his soliloquy. Moshe is charging the Jewish people. They are on the precipice of entering the land. After 40 years, this incorrigible people, 40 years of Moshe's extraordinary patience leading them. And now they're about to fulfill their dream. They're about to realize the purpose of their mission. And Moshe is giving them an instruction. He says, Kisavo, when you enter that land and you inherit and you acquire and you take up residence, you're going to take the first of your fruit. Bikurim, the mitzvah of Bikurim, is characterized as racist as the first. The Jewish people are racist, our first Torah is racist. Bikurim is given a great position of prominence, of significance among all of the mitzvahs. It is a very, very special mitzvah that the farmer takes the very first fruit and brings it to Yerushalayim and brings it to the Kohen. There's a parade, pomp and circumstance to celebrate this first little fig, the first little date, the first little fruit. A little nothing, and yet there's enormous pomp and circumstance. An enormous party, we've discussed this previously, because of what it represents, the beginning, the first, not knowing what else is coming, and yet a willingness to acknowledge and to give, and to gift it to Hashem. Again, the Torah is ambiguous. Bring it to a place, The Torah doesn't give us the GPS coordinates. It doesn't tell us exactly where that is. People are supposed to find it on their own. We discussed this several weeks ago, where HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, You have to be a dorish. You have to spiritually be a seeker and a searcher. You have to look. You take this first fruit to the Kohen, and the Kohen does a ceremony with this first fruit, and so on and so forth. The mitzvah of Bikurim. We begin with an insight from... from... Rav Yisrael Meir Druk, the wonderful Eish Tomid, we've been going through this beautiful, beautiful Sefer. And he says the following, You take from your first fruit, you bring it to Yerushalayim. Rashi says, Meir from your first, but not all of your first. It's not all first fruit that are obligated in Bikurim. It's only the seven species of Eretz Yisrael that the farmer has to monitor carefully. The farmer has to um, tie a ribbon or mark off the first of those seven species, and that is what's brought to the 
Kohen the Beis Hamikdash. Nemar Khan Aretz, Venemar Lahalan Eretz Chita Usaura, Malahalan Mishavas Haminim. So Rashi deduces from the use of the word Eretz, the parallel, that it's only the seven species of Eretz Yisrael that are obligated in Bikurim. When you go fruit in Chutzl Eretz, it's not obligated in Bikurim. Even in Israel, it's not all fruit. It is specifically the seven fruit of the land, the Shivas Haminim. Why is Bikurim so significant? It's called Rishis. It's equated with the Jewish people and with Torah. So we'll see several reasons, one of which is gratitude. Bikurim is an expression, an exercise in saying thank you. So fundamental to who we are. So defining to how we live. But the Arizal says that the mitzvah of Bikurim is a tikkun. It comes to repair. It comes to fix the chet the episode of Maragnum. Where'd the Maragnum go wrong? The Maragnum went wrong that they slandered the land of Israel. They said there are giants and we can't inherit it and it's not a blessed land and we can't go. The Maragnum had negative report. They had, didn't have faith in Hashem. They were meant to go and they were meant to investigate the land and they were meant to come back and of course to identify what they'd need to do but with a sense of confidence instead they came back and they incited fear within the people, panic. They cried the entire night. We can't go. We can't go up. It'll never work out. We'll never have an easy transition. We can't make Aliyah. And they incited this fear, this panic which became instituted within our calendar each and every year. Tishabav, the ninth of Av, the Chetamaraglam. They came back with a negative report. They slandered the land. So says the Arizal, the mitzvah of Bikurim is the antidote. The mitzvah of Bikurim is the correction. So specifically, Bikurim, to take that first fruit, the very fruit that the Maraglam came back with this enormous, gigantic, or what my children would say, ginormous fruit. And they said, you see the size of this fruit? They're giants who live there. We can never succeed. We can never conquer. It'll never work out. The fruit was the symbol of the insurrection. The fruit was the symbol of their doubt and uncertainty. The fruit was the symbol of their lack of faith. So says the Arizal, the great Kabbalist, Rosh Shlomo Luria, says the Arizal, therefore the fruit is also the symbol of our restored faith, of our renewed confidence and calm that in fact Hashem is gifting us the land. So the mitzvah of Bikurim is not random, it's not just any fruit. The mitzvah of Bikurim is specifically the fruit of the land of Israel. Rabbi Menachem Zemba, I go to Rabbi Menachem Zemba, who lived in the last century, in the Mishnah Bikurim, Perakimu Mishnah Aleph, Rabbi Menachem Zemba was medactic this Arizal's insight. Mission there says, Kate Mafrishan Bikurim, how do you separate Bikurim Yorid Adamasoksa Devro Taina Shabukra Eshko Shabikir? Rimon Shabikir, a person goes into their field and they notice a fig that's ripened, a grapes that have ripened, a pomegranate that's ripened, kosher begami vaomahare bikurim. So the farmer has to tie it. You tie a little ribbon around that little first fruit, you see it's begun to bud, and you declare, Oh, these are Bikurim, these are Bikurim. About three weeks ago we came back from the summer, and one of my daughters, my daughter Esti, and I planted a garden in our backyard. Very excited. Red peppers and cherry tomatoes and jalapenos and, and basil and uh, a delicious garden. So just yesterday she came home from school, she examined the garden, she got so excited, she sent and texted me a picture that the cherry tomatoes, there's a tiny little beginning of maybe a flowering of epis, a tiny tomato on top. Abba, it's coming. Look, it's here. 
So cherry tomatoes are not from the Shivas Aminim, and we are in Chutzlaret, and there's no mitzvah of Bikurim on our little garden, please God. But this is the excitement of the farmer. You see that first fruit, you see that first fig, and instead of saying, it's for me, we've already planned our party, Esti and I, that we're going to make some delicious salad out of our vegetables when they grow. We're going to bring it to our Shabbos table. What a party we're going to have. What a simcha it's going to be. So this first farmer, the farmer who's tying off that first fruit, instead of making a simcha and a party for himself and his family in his own home, takes that first fruit and gives it and dedicates it to Hashem. And the missionary here in Bikurim describes that process. He goes down, he sees, examines all the vegetables, the fruit, says, oh, look, it sprouted, ties a little ribbon around the first one. So, no. Why did the Mishnah give these examples? If the halacha of Bikurim applies to the seven species of Israel, so why not quote any of the seven species of Israel? Why does the Mishnah in Bikurim, Perakim Mishnah Aleph, why does it specifically give the examples of the Te'ena, Eshkol, Rimon, three of the fruit of, of the seven? What happened to the other four? Why specifically give the examples of these three? Listen to the insight of Rav Menachem Zemba. As the Zemba, it's not a coincidence that when the Mishnah has to give a dugma, an example of how you perform the mitzvah Bikurim, it doesn't choose from the other four of the seven species. It specifically chooses these three. And why specifically these three? Because go back to the story of the spies. And you will see that when the Miraglim come back and report that there are ginormous fruit and will never succeed in conquering the land, which three fruit do they point to? Which three fruit do they sample and bring back? Which three fruit do they hold up as the example of the inability to conquer the land? Specifically the same free three fruit the Mishnah quotes, namely uh, figs, grapes, and pomegranates. Why, says Renachem Zemba? Because of the insight of the Ari. Because... Bikurim is a tikkun. Bikurim is the repair, the correction for the mistake of the Chaita Maraglam. The Chaita Maraglam was a lack of faith in the land, was kafwe tov, was a failure to appreciate the gifts of Hashem, a failure to have confidence that Hashem will bring us, and the fruit was the symbol of that failure, then the fruit becomes the symbol of our success, appreciation, and gratitude, and faith. And therefore, it's the same Shivas Haminim, and not only the same Shivas Haminim, but when the Mishnah has to bring an example, it brings an example of the three that were used specifically in the context of, of Bikurim. What a great, great insight. Continuing the Pasha. So let's go with this story. We're going to spend a lot of time at the beginning of the Pasha today. So the farmer brings his first fruit. We've studied Bikurim in the past. We're not reviewing the parts that we've talked about in previous Pasha Shiurim. As tempting as they are because they're great insights in Divrei Torah, I refer you to listen to them again. If I had notes that someone typed, I would say, I'll email you the notes of last year's Pasha Shir, and we would all do better. So anyway, Ubasa Lakon, you bring it to the Kohen. Ubasa, and, the, and there's a declaration. The coin takes the ten of Biadecha, the coin takes the basket, he puts it in front of the Mizbeach, Vianisa Amarta, and now there is a recitation. I'm on Perak Chavav, chapter 26, Pasuk 5, Pasuk Hey. Page 1068 in the Old Scroll Stone Chumash. V'yanisa v'amarta, you the farmer will answer and declare. Rashi says, b'kol ram. It's got to be out loud. You've got to do it with excitement, enthusiasm, passion. And what's this declaration? Where is it? L'fnei Hashem lokach. You declare before Hashem. Arami oved avi. All of a sudden, this farmer, who has a little fig, a little pomegranate, a little cluster of grapes, a gurnished. The farmer is not coming with a 18-wheeler tractor-trailer truck 
to deliver to Hashem, the farmer is coming with mamish, a little garnished fig, a figula. That's it. And yet, he makes this whole declaration. Here I am in front of the base of Mikdash. Here I am with Nei Hashem. And I have a whole declaration to make. Arami, Oviravi, I want to tell you all about my history. I want to tell you about my history. Here it is, the history of the world according to the farmer. Arami, Oved Avi, an Aramean, tried to destroy my father. By Eret Mitzrayim, I went down to Egypt. And we lived there few in number. And while we were in Egypt, psh, population explosion. Boy, did we multiply. And the Egyptians, they mistreated us, they oppressed us, they persecuted us, they afflicted us. And they put great work, great labor. We davened, we called out, cried out to Hashem. He heard our cry. He saw our suffering. He took us out with an outstretched hand. There was sound and light show likes of which you've never seen before. Ten plagues, it was outrageous. He took us to this place. He gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now... And now, it's the punchline. It's like you say to somebody, tell me about yourself. Tell you about myself? Well, my great-great-great-great-grandparents migrated to Russia in 1703, and then my parents, and then this, and then we came here, and then we survived, and then we came, and then I went... I, just give me the punchline. I'm just curious, like, where you went to college? Who's your rabbi? What yeshiva did you go to? So the farmer brings the little fig, and instead of just saying, Shkoyach Hashem, thanks for the first fig, first one's yours, I'm going to go back to my farm and enjoy the rest of them. Shkoyach, thank you very much, made my way here. Shkoyach, thank you, weiter, back to my farm. No, he reviews the totality of Jewish history. First, there was an Aramean tried to destroy my father, and we were in Egypt, and we suffered 210 years, but then Hashem took us out. It was the sound of the light show. It was incredible. And then we wandered the desert, and then we came to this land, and we inherited it, and I planted my farm. Just get to the punchline. You planted your farm. You got the fig. Here you are. Skip to this part. I'm here with the first of my fruit. That God has granted me. I'm bowing down to you. And I'm so excited. I'm so happy with all the good. Why is the farmer starting from the history of the world? Six days of creation and the seventh day Hashem rested and Adam met Chava. And what's the whole history in the world? Why is he going back all the way to the very beginning? Moreover, my dear friends, I'll ask you another question. You all perked up when we started reading this section, Arami Ovid Avi. And why did you perk up? Because it's familiar to you. And why is it familiar to you? Because you're such experts in Parshas Kisavo? Of course you are. But in addition, you're familiar with this passage because you don't only hear it once a year in Parshas Kisavo. When else do you hear about the story of the Arami Ovid Avi? When else do you hear the story about the Aramean who wanted to kill my father? I'm going to, no one break out in hives. We are six months away from the next Pesach. But Pesach, we sit at the Seder and we declare, say, Ulamad, ma bikesh lavan arami lasos Yaakov avinu. Go and learn. What did Lavan want to do to my father Yaakov? Paro lo gaza el azharim. Paro only wanted to kill the males. Lavan bikesh lakores akol. But Lavan, psh, Lavan was so nefarious, so evil, so wicked. Lovan had a plan not only to eliminate the male firstborn, Lovan wanted to take us all out. Lovan tried to destroy the totality of the Jewish people. So there's so many questions. And this is normally on the Haggadah. Again, you could take out your pen and paper, or if someone shares the notes with all of us, you'll have a Dvar Torah for the Seder next year, which, please God, you'll be back to being with your entire family and a lot of Divri Torah to make up for. So listen carefully. Asks everyone at the Seder, Lovan, what? 
Lavan was worse than Paro? Paro was a genocidal dictator maniac. Paro performed a genocide. He killed a million Jews in Egypt. It's outrageous. Next to the Holocaust, the Egyptian genocide ranks among one of the top Jewish tragedies of all time. And yet we're saying that Lavan wanted to do even worse? What exactly did Lavan want to do? Okay, Lavan worked Yaakov pretty hard. Yavan tricked him and fooled him. Lavan chased him and wanted to get him back. When do we ever find that Lavan wanted to kill Yaakov? Let alone, let alone, when do we ever find that Lavan wanted to destroy all the Jewish people? When did it happen? Where is it in our Chumash? Where is it in our Torah? Where is it in our Jewish history? It's absent. What is the Baal Haggadah talking about? Next, how do we know Shene'amar? The Haggadah continues. Arami Avi We now quote our Psukim from Kisavo. How do you know that Arami Ovid Avi is talking about Lavan? How do you know it's talking about Lavan? An Aramean wanted to destroy my father. Maybe he's not talking about Lavan at all. Moreover, the third question, if the Haggadah has to quote any section, if the Haggadah is going to darshan up any psukim, okay, it's time for the excellence, the core of the Haggadah. This is not the fun part. There's no food. There's no props. This is the biblical exegesis part. It's the part that the family goes through quickly. Someone says, come on, read this part quickly so we can get to the fun stuff. So what is the biblical exegesis? What is the part that we're going to focus on? We're going to unravel. We're going to examine and analyze. If you would have asked me, what Parsha should we study together Seder night? What is the most essential Parsha Seder night? I would have said, go back to Sefer Shmos. Go back to Bo B'Shalach. Go back to the story of, of leaving Egypt. Why are we studying from Kisavo? We all of a sudden have this declaration, this formula, that the farmer takes the first fruit to the base of Mikdash and comes to the Kohen. And the farmer has this entire formula, this entire recitation. Oh, that's what we'll study Seder night. So three questions. Three questions. What did Lavan want to do worse than Paro? Who says the Arami Oved Avi? This Aramean is even Lavan to begin with. And why in the world are we reading from Parsha's Kisava? Excuse me, from our Parsha on Seder night, rather than reading the essential story or source of leaving, of leaving Mitzrayim. So there's a beautiful Haggadah from Rav Rimon, Rav Yosef Tzvi Rimon, the Rav of Alon Shvut and the Rosh Shiva of Machon Lev, a great Talmachacham and a great Machaber Svarim. And he's a beautiful, beautiful Haggadah that appears both in Hebrew, Shirat Miriam, and that's been translated into English by Masada Rav Kook. It's a really beautiful Haggadah. And in here he addresses all of these questions, which normally we'd be studying on Erev Pesach, but of course this all relates to our Parsha as, as well. Relates to our Parsha. Why do we take it from, from here? So first of all, he says the editor of the Haggadah chose these four Psukim Kisavo, which tells the story of the Exodus in a much shorter form. Had he wanted to use the Psukim of, of Shmos, it would have made the Haggadah much longer, and we might have been obliged to skip certain Psukim. So therefore, these four, they're succinct, they capture the whole story, and that's why they're chosen. It's a very practical or pragmatic reason, number one, he offers. Number two, another reason for choosing these Psukim is they're part of the commandment of bringing first fruit. Every person is required to bring first fruit and tell the story of Yitzhiyaz Mitzrayim. It's a description of the past and a demonstration of how to properly tell over Yitzhiyaz Mitzrayim. In other words, the farmer, we'll talk about in a moment why, but part of the exercise of offering the first fruit is reviewing everything that happened until that point. 
is going through the story of Jewish history. So in that context of reviewing the story of Jewish history, we have a model, we have an example of how to properly capture and articulate Yitzhiya Mitzrayim. So Sefer Shmos is the unfolding of the story in real time. That's not the text we used. What's the text that we use? Not the unfolding of the story in real time. The text we use is later when we have an example, when we have a precedent of somebody who's telling the story. After all, what is Seder night if not the obligation to tell the story? So we now use and draw from the precedent of someone telling the story, namely the farmer. One can add another reason, says Rav Rimon. The mitzvah of bringing the first fruit expresses the attribute of gratitude. Bikurim, the essence, the core of the mitzvah of Bikurim is hoda'a, is gratitude. This farmer is so grateful. It's not Pashat. You go to Home Depot and you buy the little feed and Hashem helps water the garden every afternoon in Florida conveniently in August, in the beginning of September. He is a partner in that garden. He waters it even when you or your daughter neglect it. Yet, it's not a given that anything's going to grow. It's a miracle that something grows. So when the farmer sees evidence of the first growth, the farmer, even before they know how much more will grow, the farmer goes to say thank you. The farmer goes to say thank you. Because thank you for us is a core essential value in our mind-body-soul challenge of the Bokerton Synagogue. If you go to brsonline.org slash Elul, you can still sign up. We're only a third of the way through the 30-day challenge, mind-body-soul. Nine different challenges, beginner, intermediate, advanced for the mind-body-soul. So one of my three groups, I have a mind, a body, and a soul WhatsApp groups. We're doing a challenge. Again, we're only a third through. It's not too late to join. One of them is keeping a gratitude journal for 30 straight days, writing down three things you're grateful for each day. Because that's the essence of what it means to be a Jew. We're called Yehudim from Hoda'a. Because we are a nation and a people who express gratitude. We're express, Rafutner's famous vort, Modele, Modeal, implicit in every expression of gratitude is a admission. I needed you. I grew from you. I gained from you. I wouldn't be the same without you. Arrogant people who are unable and unwilling to admit they needed another struggle to say thank you. And humble people who have no problem saying you enriched me have no problem being able to say thank you. Thank you is not for the recipient of the thank you. Thank you is for the one who offers it. It's for the one who offers it. We spoke last week. I think it was in the Parsha Shir I quoted my great uncle, uh, Rabbi Lu Naman, Rabbi Yisrael Naman, right? I think it was last week's Parsha Shir, who had the Yiddish expression and talked about why is it called Hakaras HaTov? Not Tashlam Tov, you're not paying off the good. You're recognizing the good because gratitude is not a debt that you ever fully pay. It is a acknowledgement that you carry. And that's what the farmer is doing, reinforcing this expression of gratitude. person goes down to the field and looks at the crop and knows that everything's from Hashem. So you know what's included in real gratitude? This is Rav Ramon's insight, and I want to share it with you. It's such an important, important insight. When the farmer goes down to the field and sees that first pomegranate, that first fig, that first grape, the farmer doesn't see only what's in front of them in that moment. The farmer doesn't just see the grape, the fig, or the pomegranate. What does the farmer see? Everything that led until that moment. Farmer says, you know, wow, my parents are survivors. My grandparents are survivors. It's not Pashat. It's not a given that I'm even here today. Who says I should even be alive? My grandparents were survivors. It's a miracle they're here. And you know, they struggled. And it's a miracle I have this house. And it's a miracle I got that job. And it's a miracle this woman agreed to marry me. And it's a miracle I have these children. It's a miracle I afforded this farm. And it's a miracle that I planted things and they're growing. And it's a miracle that there's no pestilence that wiped it out. And it's a miracle that the sun has shined and the air is here and the water is. It's a miracle. So the farmer doesn't just see what's in front of him. The farmer sees the totality of everything that led up to it. And that's why this farmer, who should just be saying, Shkoyach for the fig, doesn't just say succinctly, Shkoyach 
for the fig. The farmer says, you know what this fig represents? Do you know everything that led up to this fig? It goes back to Plymouth Rock and the Mayflower. It goes back to how I got here. It goes back to the other side being survivors or escaping after Kristallnacht. Do you know what goes into this fig? There's nothing passionate about this fig. So I'm saying thank you not for the fig. I'm saying thank you, my parents and my grandparents and my great-grandparents, for my spouse, my children, and my grandchildren. I'm saying thank you for my health and well-being. I'm saying thank you for my shelter. I'm saying thank you for so much more. This is the meaning of the bracha. We say, shahakol. You drink a cup of coffee, a glass of water. You make a bracha, shahakol niyebidvaro. Everything else is specific. You say, priha adama, priha aretz, lechem min haaretz. Every other bracha is specific. This bracha, shahakol, is generic. What's the bracha of shahakol? You should say a bracha, coffee is like medicine we take every morning. You know, when you realize that on the fast day, when you can't have that coffee and you break out into withdrawal, you have to spend two weeks before weaning yourself off of that, off of that addiction, that substance called coffee. Coffee is the greatest gift. There should be a specific bracha we should say on coffee, like a, a hagomel. You know, it saves our life each and every day. And yet it's a shahakal. Why are you saying a shahakal? Because when you say shahakal in the cup of coffee, what you're saying is, Hashem, I'm not just grateful for this cup of caffeine. What I'm saying is shahakal diabidvaro. There's something called a coffee bean. There's a farmer who bothered to grow it. There's the person who broke their back harvesting it. And there's the person who packaged it. And the person who ground it into little coffee. And the person who put it in a pod. And the person who invented my carrying machine. is shahakal, everything. The whole environment, the whole atmosphere, the whole ambiance, all the people, all the everything that went into it. So when this farmer is saying thank you, it's a model for all of us and how you say thank you. When you say thank you, you don't just say thank you for the moment, for the specific thing. You're saying a thank you for everything that went into this, everything in this background. Right, so every moment in the section, there's one major operative verb. It's repeated time and again. Nun, tough, nun. Nasan, gives you. Hashem gives you, Hashem gave you, Hashem gives you, Hashem gives you. It's over and over and over again. How many times he elaborates here? It is no less than 10 times in this parak. Dvarim Chavav, in Parshas Kisavu, in our Parsha, no less than 10 times do we have this verb. Nun, tof, nun. Nasan, God gives. We have, no, when you come into the land, Kisavu, Allah, Tashem, Hashem, Lekecha, Nosein Lecha. You take the first of the fruit, which Hashem, no saying, He gives. And you come to the Kohen and you declare that Hashem gave this to our forefathers, la seislanu, to give us. And the Egyptians treated us cruelly, and vayitnu, they gave us hard labor. And He brought us to the place, and vayitain, He gave us this land flowing with zavas And now, behold, I brought you the first fruit of this land, which I brought you, nasata me, that He gave me, sorry, 11 times, in the 11th time, and then rejoice with all the good that your God has, nasan, given you and your household, and the levy, and the stranger among you. No less than 11 times in this short passage, the beginning of this parak, within 12 psukim, 11 times we have this verb nasan, because to remind us that Hashem gives and gives and gives, and the gratitude we should have. It's not a gift and a giving that happened way back when and once, it's a gift that keeps on giving, that it gives us over and over. So Yitzhiya Mitzrayim is only an example of how Hashem helped us historically throughout the generation, and we thank Him on Seder night for all that help. So says Rav Rimon, why are we invoking this passage instead of the other? He offers three reasons. Number one, it's succinct. And the beginning of the story is too much, too long. It would take forever. If you think the Seder is long enough, you'd never get to the Afikoman by Chatzos. Number two reason, he says, is because we're not repeating the story the way it happened in real time. We're repeating the story the way that we were taught how to tell the story. When do we have an example of somebody telling the story? Bikurim. That's why that's the section that we invoke. And number three, because what's the Seder if not an exercise in gratitude? Seder night is all about thank you, Hashem. Thank you, Hashem.
Yam da dam dam We're thanking Hashem. That's Seder night. So, therefore, we use the section which is all about gratitude, the, the model of gratitude, the lesson plan of gratitude, which is called the mitzvah of Bikurim. Rav Rimon points out there's an anomaly. Eleven times it says Vayitnu in order to reinforce and remind us that Hashem gives. He gives and He gives and He gives, and we take and we take and we thank, and therefore we must thank and we must thank and we must thank. There's one very peculiar He gives here. And what is the peculiar He gives? It says the Egyptians treated us cruelly, they afflicted us. They gave us. Isn't that a peculiar verb? They gave us backbreaking labor. I'm on page 1068. They persecuted, they oppressed us, they caused us to suffer. And they gave us. What do you mean they gave us? They should have said they. I don't know, they imposed upon us, they broke us, they tortured us. What do you mean by it knew they gave us? So Rav Rimon offers a very interesting suggestion. He says, maybe Hashem's giving us his continual divine providence over the nations of Israel, both in good times and in times of distress and sorrow. Even in the servitude of Mitzrayim, it was part of the divine plan, it was part of Hashem's promise to Avram. When Heshi told us in the Brisbane Epsarim that he would enslave them for 400 years. Of course, the nation of Israel would like to be redeemed in a happy and easy way, but we know that Hashem loves his nation and that troubles and distress are part of his greater plan. These are also stages in Israel's redemptive process. The Egyptians thought that they were beating the children of Israel. However, it was really all part of the divine plan. The giving of hard labor to Klal Yisrael was part of Hashem's giving in the overall screen. In the end, everything stems from the good giving of Hashem to the nation of Israel, both the good things that we receive easily and the difficult things we do not understand. So Rav Ramon suggests that this anomaly in the 11 times the verb Nasan is used, that the Egyptians gave us hard labor, is that that gift was also from Hashem. Even though the Egyptians thought that they were giving us something which would break us, which would compromise us, which would corrupt us, that giving was also part of Hashem's master plan. That also was for a reason. That also benefited us. We see and we thank Hashem not only in the good times, and not only when it all works out, and not only when we can understand, but even when it feels we're being broken and beaten down, even when it feels we're being persecuted and oppressed. That too is given, in fact, is a gift from Hashem, even if we don't understand it when it happens, even if we may never understand it, but we see it in the context of all coming from Hashem. But let's get back to the section itself. Arami Oved Avin, Arabian was my father, to which the Baal Haggadah concludes that's Lavan, and what he wanted to do was even worse, even worse than Paro. Where in the world does that come from? Who is this Aramean? So let's take a look. Zakhtar Rashi. Rashi says, who is the Aramean? Rashi says, Arami Ovid Avi, Mazker Chazdei Amakom. We're mentioning the goodness, the kindness of Hashem. Arami Ovid Avi, Lavan Bikesh Lakor Sakol, Kesherod of Achra Yaakov. Lavan pursued Yaakov. Ush Bishvil Shechish of Lassus, Chishav Lamakom, Kilo Asa. I don't understand that. We asked, what did Lavan actually do in the end? How could Rashi say that it was Lavan? Lavan wanted to destroy Yaakov. So the Ibn Ezra jumps on Rashi. Rav Avram Ibn Ezra, and the Ibn Ezra disagrees for two reasons. First, he says the Ibn Ezra, should we look at it inside? Let's look at it inside. Perechavav. Pasuk, Arami Ovid Avi. Hey. Pasuk, hey. Chavav, hey. Says the Ibn Ezra, Rashi's wrong for two reasons. 
Aramid Oved Avi. Rashi's wrong for two reasons. There it is. Milas Oved Mapilum Shainam Yotzen. Vilo Haya Arami Alavan Haya Kasav Omer Ma'avid Omeaved. First, grammatically, he disagrees with Rashi. First, Ibn Ezra says, it should have said, Arami Ma'avid Avi, implying the Aramean wanted to destroy my father. Instead, it says, Arami Oved Avi. Second, says the Ibn Ezra, it says, he chased my father Yaakov down to Mitzrayim, wanted to destroy him. Do we have any evidence? Is there in the story, in the narrative, anywhere that Lavan chased Yaakov down to Mitzrayim? So therefore the Ibn Ezra concludes that Arami Oved Avi is not talking about Lavan. Who is the Aramean and Arami? Says the Ibn Ezra, Hakarov Sharami Hu Yaakov, Kilo Amarakasov Kashahaya Avi Baaram Haya Oved. He says the Pasuk is talking about Yaakov. Uwah, you hear that? The Ibn Ezra says, Arami Oved Avi, the Arami, the Aramean is not Lavan. The Arami is Yaakov. My father Yaakov was Oved, was in distress when, when he was in Aram. He was poor, he was helpless, he was in distress when he was in Aram. That's how the Ibn Ezra understands. A third interpretation, the Rashbam, B'Shmuel ben Meir, Rashi's grandson, says the Rashbam, Arami Ovid Avi, Avi Avram, Arami Haya, Ovid, Vigola Meir, it's Aram. Who is the Arami? Who is the Aramean, says the Rashbam? It's referring to Avraham Avinu, who was, in, who was lost and in exile. He was an Aramean. He was an Aramean. The Svarno also weighs in. The Svarno says it was it was Yaakov. So all of them are first from here on the Parsha weigh in. Arami Oved Avi, an Aramean, Arami Oved Avi. How do you understand that? Rashi says the Arami is Lavan, who tried to destroy Yaakov. The Ibn Ezra doesn't like it and includes the Arami is Yaakov. What does it mean, Oved? He was the victim, the target of destruction. The Rashbam says, no, go back even further in Jewish history. It's not talking about Yaakov, it's not talking about Lavan, it's talking about none other than Avram Avinu, a three-way mach locus. The editor of the Haggadah explains the Pasuk the way Rashi understood, that we're talking about Lavan, and that what Lavan wanted to do was worse. The Maharal, the Maharal in two places, the Maharal both in his Gvuras Hashem, Perak Nun Dalid, and Gur Aryeh, this super commentary on Rashi on the Torah. The Maharal defends Rashi against the Ibn Ezra. You remember the Ibn Ezra asked two questions on Rashi. The Ibn Ezra, Ibn Ezra said, number one, if the Arami was Lavan, it should have said Ma'avid, not Oved. And number two, we never see Lavan trying to go down to Egypt. Says the Maharal, why does the Pasuk refer to Lavan? Why does it say Oved rather than Ma'avid? The Maharal explains, Lavan always wanted to destroy Yaakov. And that's why it says Oved in the present tense. It wasn't a one moment, it wasn't one time. He always wanted to. The verb Oved indicates an ongoing practice instead of a one-time fleeting desire. In every generation there's a Lavan who wants to destroy us. And this is why in the Haggadah this leads to in every generation there's a Lavan. We're not talking about Lavan because he deserves to be remembered. We're talking about Lavan because he is the arch, he's the archetype, he is the model of a paradigm of an enemy who is obeyed in the present tense. It's not anti-Semitism existed once back in history. It's ongoing, it's continuous and contiguous, and that's why we say it in the present tense of obeyed. Lastly, and then we'll move on. We asked, was Lavan really worse than Yaak- than uh, Paro? The Baal Haggadah learned up our Parsha, Kisavo, Bikurim, 
that the Arami Oved Ivi, who's this Arami, is Lavan. And that Lavan's worse than Paro. How is Lavan worse than Paro? The Shibole Halekat Haggadah answers as follows. You know why Lavan's worse? Because Paro was a physical enemy. Paro was physically threatened by the presence of the Jewish people. Paro did a demographic study, Paro did a census, and he said, this Jewish people, if they rebel and revolt, they could take over this country, and therefore I need to eliminate them. It was a physical, political um, conflict. But Lavan, Lavan wasn't physical. Lavan didn't just try to destroy the males, the power base. Lavan, this was a spiritual battle. Lavan tried to assimilate the Jewish people. He wanted to destroy everything, the very existence, the very identity of the nation of the Jewish people. He wanted to eliminate the children of Avram Yitzchak and of his son-in-law Yaakov, and that is the greatest danger. A greater danger than even our physical annihilation, although that obviously is a grave danger, but even a greater danger is the power of assimilation. Lavan wanted, he wanted Leah and Rachel, and he wanted Yaakov, and he wanted their whole family to assimilate into his view, into his ideology, into his way of being. So says Rav Rimon, on Seder night, the night of freedom, we proclaim, Jews, watch out. Watch out. Don't only watch out for the anti-Semites who try to destroy you with anger. Watch out for the anti-Semites who try to destroy you with love, who welcome you, who try to swallow you up, who try to integrate you and assimilate you and welcome you. Love on Bikesh Lakaras Akol. What an important message for Seder night. What an important message for this farmer. What an important message for us that not only do we have to worry about, and we do in our day, in our time, rise up and confront anti-Semites, but we also have to worry about the danger and the threat, which in fact statistically is much greater than um, than anti-Semitism, which is the danger of intermarriage and assimilation, the danger of those who are giving up our very identity, and that's the message of that is the message of Seder night. You see this as well in the words Vayareu, Vayareu Osanu Hamitzrim. These words Vayareu Osanu Hamitzrim, the great tzaddik Rav Yaakov Yechiel of Koznitz, Koznitz Rebbe says the following: What does it mean Vayareu Osanu Hamitzrim? Perachavav Pasukvav. And then we'll get on with the parsha. I promise we'll do a little bit more. Vayareu son of Amitzim. What does that mean? He says the word Vayareu has two meanings. Vayareu can come from the word Rea. Rea means a friend, a chaver. Rea is friendship, and it could also mean from the word Roa, like Ra, evil, wickedness, bad. Vayareu son of Amitzim means the Mitzim, the Egyptians. They confronted us. They challenged us in both ways. Vayareu. They challenged us by welcoming us in, by giving us safe harbor, by letting us integrate and assimilate, by enabling and entitling us to intermarry. Vayareu, they said, be my Rea. Feel free to be our friend. Have an equal part of our world and our culture. And that too is a great, great danger. Vayareu, there are double dangers Jews face and we have to have our eyes open to be alert, to see the danger and threat of both Vayareu. The Vayareu of Ra, of when they come to kill, but the Vayareu of Rea, the Vayareu also of the danger of the friendship, the danger of being too welcoming and too inviting, and where that can lead to, where that could lead to as well. Okay, now the farmer in the declaration says, or the end of the declaration, I should say, Pasuk Yid Aleph, Perach Avav Pasuk Yid Aleph, page 1068. After the declaration, the Torah says, V'samachta b'cholatov. Be happy with all the good that Hashem has given you in your household. Be happy and be grateful. As we said, that is the essence of Bikurim, and it's why we invoke it Seder night, and it's what Kisava was meant to remind us and inspire us 
that we have to be happy and we have to be grateful. Listen to the Imre Chaim. Listen to the great vision of Tzurebbe. V'samachta b'chol atov. V'samachta, be happy with all the good. Writes the vision of Tzur. Im yodim sh'akol tov. As efshar lios b'simcha. Kamaisa hayadua ima rebbe rebzusha. So the, the uh, vision of Tzurebbe, the Imre Chaim says, V'samachta, how can you find happiness? Who doesn't want happiness? We're all in as the uh, American Declaration entitles us or allows us. We're all pursuing happiness. Who doesn't want to be happy? Who doesn't want to be happy? Don't worry, be happy, as the great poet said. Who doesn't want to be happy? Everybody just wants to be happy. How can you be happy? V'samachta, how can you be happy? Bechol hatov. When you realize that everything that happens in life Everything is from Hashem. Everything is for the good. Everything is for a reason. Everything is by design. The answer, the formula of, of Simcha is Vesamachta. You know how you find happiness? Bicholatov. And then cryptically he alludes to a story, Kemaisa, the Rebbe Reb It's like the story of the Rebbe Reb Zusha. Now the Imre Chaim doesn't tell you what story, but I'm going to tell you the story. The story of the Rebbe Reb Zusha that the Imre Chaim is cryptically alluding to is the following. A man once came, a man once came to Rav Dov Ber, the famous Maggid of Mezrich, with a question. He says, you know, the Mishnah says in Brachos that a person is supposed to bless Hashem for the bad. You have to be willing to give a bracha to Hashem for the bad as much as for the good. How is it possible? He asked the Maggid of Mezrich, how is it possible? How could you accept even the bitter, the painful, the difficult, how can you accept it the same way as you accept the joy, the happiness, the good news? How could a human being react to what you experience in the bad in exactly the same way? Kishem! Kishem! You have to bless Hashem and see it coming from Hashem and acknowledge it from Hashem the same way that you experience the good. How is it even possible? So if Dov Be'er the Magad said to find an answer, you got to go see my great chassid, my disciple, my Talmud. You have to go see the Rebbe of Zusha. The Rebbe of Zusha of Anapoli. Only he can help you. So Reb Zusha received the guest warmly. He made his way to the Rebbe Reb Zusha. And the visitor decided that before challenging the Rebbe Reb Zusha with his question, he would observe Reb Zusha's conduct. So before long, he concluded that his host really exemplified exactly this Gemara, the Kashem. Because he saw that no matter what happened in the Rebbe Reb Zusha's life, no matter the challenges he endured, no matter the suffering he overcame, nevertheless, he was always so happy. And in fact, he couldn't think of anyone who suffered more hardship then Reb Zusha. The Rebbe Reb Zusha was a poor man and he never had enough to eat. And his family had all kinds of illnesses and suffering and loss. And yet, the Rebbe Reb Zusha always had a smile on his face and a positive disposition and a good and a kind word and joy and gratitude to Hashem. But what was the secret? So this chassid, the visitor, who was sent there by Rav Dobbe, by the Magad of Mezrich, finally one day turned to the Rebbe Reb Zusha and decided the moment the time was right. He would challenge Reb Zusha. And so he said... I'm here. I went to the Magad, your Rebbe, and he had this. I had this question: How is it possible? Kishem to the same degree, to the same extent, to thank Hashem for the bad as much as for the good. How is it possible? He repeated the question. The Rebbe Abzusha looked at him and said, "You raise a good question. It's Taka, a good point. It's a good question. But why did why did the Rebbe, why did the Magad and Mezrich send you to me? How would I know? I've never had a day of suffering in my life." I've never had Ra in a moment in my life. How would I know the answer to the question? It's a Meiradika, it's a Peladika story of the Rebbe of Zusha. The answer was, Bechol Hatov. If you view everything happening in your life as good, Vesamachta. You're not trying to figure out or reconcile how you could be happy with the bad. There is no bad. Bechol Hatov. If we change our mentality, if we filter everything through the prism, that everything is good, it's all Tov, then Vesamachta. 
the result is feeling a sense of simcha. So the Rebbe Rebzusha said, that's a great question, but I don't know why he sent you to me. I've never suffered, so how would I know the answer? You never suffered? He lived his life thinking and feeling he never suffered. And because he had that attitude, he never suffered. Therefore, therefore, he was besimcha all the time. The Imrechaim, the Vishnator, offers another explanation. V'samachta b'chol atov b'chol is begematria ben. Ein tov el ha-Torah, sh'tesamach b'banam b'nei Torah, sh'zeu kol atov. Bakol is ben, it means continuity, children, offspring. V'samachta, you know what the simcha comes from? Tov. Ein tov el ha-Torah, v'samachta bakol ha-tov. When you see the next generation living Torah, when you successfully transmit and inspire Torah to the next generation, then v'samachta. That's the biggest simcha there is. It's not the bigger house or the bigger car or the bigger retirement fund. The v'samachta, the biggest simcha is bachol, having a ben tov to whom you've transmitted and successfully given Torah. V'gam nasativ lalevi lager, and the Pasuk says, and you also, I gave to the, to the levi and to the ger, lo avartim mitzvosecha, and I didn't violate your mitzvos. The Torah goes on that the farmer declares, Vidoy, my sir, I didn't violate anything. So it says the vision is Gambe Sagi. You might say to the farmer, look, I gave out the trumas and maestros. I distributed it properly. I gave to the levy, I gave to the gear, I gave it all out to where it went and where it was supposed to go. So I give a lot of staka. And I buy my way out of Averos. I could do what I want, look at what I want, say what I want, cut corners in business. Why? Because I give a lot of staka. That's what the Torah is saying. Giving stucca is not an excuse. Giving stucca is not a cop-out. Giving stucca doesn't cover you for the Averis that you do. Giving stucca is supposed to complement the aspiration for the mitzvahs that we for the mitzvahs that we do. Okay, that is the Imre Chaim. The uh, Rav Nachman also has an insight. Rav Nachman of Breslov. Rav Nachman of Breslov says here, He says, he says that a person needs to be grateful. He says that the Bechia, the word for crying, is an acronym. It means to sing out to Hashem even with tears. Even when you're moved to tears by something sad, to channel that and use that to uplift you in a connection, in a love of, of, of Hashem. Next, the farmer here. Oh, one more. My dear friend Rabbi Ari Mirzov shared with me a beautiful insight from the Rebbe of Kodnov, who says the following. He says, What's the whole Pasuk? Be grateful with all the good that Hashem has given you. He says, how do you read this? Not be grateful all the good Hashem give you all the good. Hashem gave me figs and pomegranates and Hashem gave me grapes and Hashem gave me... No, it's not that I'm grateful for all the fruit that Hashem gave me. What am I grateful? I'm grateful that I've been given Hashem Elokecha. I'm grateful that I have a relationship with my father. I'm grateful that I have a relationship with my creator. I'm grateful that I have a relationship with the Melech Ma'achem Lachem, with the Ribbon Shalom. I have access and I have an audience with the King of Kings. I am grateful. Be grateful for the good. And what's that tov? Wow. That not just there's a Hashem, but He is my God. When you want to feel grateful, when you want to feel gratitude, say, you know what? I'm not wandering this world. I'm not searching for happiness. I'm not looking for meaning. I have the Torah. I have the code. I've got the secret manual. 
and I have a relationship with the Almighty. Who's not proud when they have a relationship with someone in a powerful position? People love to name drop or post pictures on social media of themselves with famous people. Do you know who I know? Do you know who I'm connected to? Do you know how I have on my Rolodex? Do you even know what a Rolodex is if you're over under a certain age? Do you know who I'm connected with? People love to name drop. Well, every one of us can name drop. You know who I have access to? You know who's on my speed dial? You know who's on my favorites? The Rebona Shalom. Whenever I want, I can talk to him. He's there for me. He answers me. Vesamachta, you know what should bring you a sense of simcha? That you know who's on your favorites? Who's on your speed dial? Hashem Hassan Lacha. Hashem is Elokecha. That he gave us, that Hashem is Elokecha. That he is our God. And that should be a source of tremendous joy, tremendous happiness, and tremendous, uh, tremendous success in our life. Okay. Uh, what should we do next? So much more to talk about. Let's move on from the video in Meiser. Let's go weiter. Hashkifa. Hashkifa memon kachecha uvoreches nachalasecha. The Torah goes on. Hashkifa. We're turning the page. Page 1070 in the article Stone Chumash. We're on Perak Chavav, chapter 26. Pasuk Tesvav, Pasuk 15. Hashkifa memon kachecha, kachecha. Min Hashemayim, gaze down from your holy abode, we tell Hashem. Uvoreches Amchas Yisrael veisa Adamashin Asatalanu, and bless the Jewish people and bless this land. So at the end of the farmer fulfilling the mitzvah of Bikurim, at the end of the farmer bringing the first fruit and fulfilling the mitzvah of Bikurim, now the farmer says, turns to Hashem and says, Hashkifa mimon please look down. Hashkifa, like the word hashkafa. What's your hashkafa? What's your outlook on life? You, Hashem, hashkifa. Gaze down, look down, mimon kodshecha, from your holy abode. Uvarech samcha. And at the end of the mitzvah bikurim is a plea. Please bless your nation. Please bless this land. This land that's Eretz Zavas Chalav Udevash. The Sharem Mitzvila, Rav Pinkis Zatzal. Some of you studied Sharem with me, Mitzvila with me. We did it on Wednesday mornings for several years. All the recordings can be found on rabbiefromgoldberg.org, nyutorah.org. If you want to learn through that, say for 10 minutes at a time with me, it's one of my favorite svarim in the world. I first learned about it from my Rebbe, Rabbi David Miller in Griskolo, and I had the discuss of learning it with him. And it's a magnificent sefer. The Yalkut Shimoni says that there are 13 synonyms for the word tefillah. Tefillah, rina, bitur, zaka, tzaka, so on and so forth. We have 13 synonyms for the word to pray. That's because not all prayer is the same. Prayer at the deathbed is different than prayer at the labor bed, the birthing bed. Prayer at a moment of great news is different than prayer at a moment of tragedy. Not all prayer is the same. And so he goes through a chapter for each of the synonyms, each of the names or words of prayer, and teaches us all about prayer. So in Sha'aram B'Tfilah, on the parak of Chiloi, the type of Tfilah that's called Chiloi, Rav Pincus says the following, listen carefully. We say this to Shabbos Mincha. David HaMelech says, As when it comes to me, I turn to you, Adavan, when it is an Eis Ratzon. Hashem, everything, everything is from you. The cup, the drink, it's all from you. Now, not all times are created equal for davening. Not all times are created equal for davening. There are what we call, I'm accused of this being one of my favorite words, there are auspicious times for davening. There are times that are more auspicious. If someone could give me a better word than auspicious, I'm happy to ditch auspicious and use it, but it's such a good word. There are auspicious times for davening. Not all times for davening are created equal. We know that. 
For example, we are in one of those auspicious periods now. The Pasuk says, Dirshu Hashem Bihimatso. Search out Hashem Bihimatso when he can be found. Karuba, so Karov, call out to him when he is close. So one understanding of this Pasuk is, Elu One interpretation is these are the ten days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. But we have another tradition that these are the days of Elul. All month of Elul, our tefillah, you know, normally we're on dial-up, now we're on super speed. Normally you're on 3G, now we're on 4G or 5G. Whatever the metaphor is, our tefillah, we can always daven and talk to him, but sometimes we are on a higher speed than others. Dear Shu Hashem Behimatsa, call out to Hashem when he's close. So Rapinkas is pointing out, There are times that are called Eisratzon. There are times that are more auspicious, propitious to be able to reach out to Hashem. Dear Shu Hashem Behimatsa, there are times that he's found more readily. So says Rapinkas, one of the times where it's most or more appropriate to turn and daven to Hashem is right after you do a mitzvah. In the merit of having done the mitzvah, the gates of heaven are wide open. When you do a mitzvah, you fulfill the will of Hashem, the gates of heaven are wide open, and when they're wide open, quickly get your tefillah straight through. And the Kaddish Baruch Hu is more readily willing, able, eager to receive and accept our tefillah just after a mitzvah that we've done. And where does he get this from, Rav Pincus? He gets it from our parsha. When the farmer finishes the mitzvah of Bikurim, when the farmer concludes distributing his trumas and maestros, what does he do? He's mevakshem. The farmer finishes this mitzvah by turning to Hashem and saying, Look down! And I'm asking you now, I'm offering a tefillah, I'm asking you to give a bracha. I'm asking you for a bracha. When do we ask for a bracha? When do we offer that tefillah? Just at the conclusion of a mitzvah. So we see that there's an idea of offering a tefillah just after you've done a mitzvah. It is a more auspicious time. It's a time that a tefillah is more readily received and more likely to be answered. Don't waste it. You just did a mitzvah in the schus, in the merit of that mitzvah. Offer a tefillah. Offer a tefillah. And Rapinkas brings other examples. The Gemara Baba Basra says, Rabbi Elazar, he would give money to a poor person. When would he daven after giving tzedakah? In order to open the gates so that his tefillah would be accepted, you introduce the tefillah with a mitzvah. And many have the custom of giving tzedakah before davening. Giving tzedakah during davening, giving tzedakah before davening. Why? Because the davening then comes on the heels of a mitzvah. Do a mitzvah, and by doing the mitzvah you open the gates of heaven, and you follow the gates of heaven being opened with your tefillah inserting it. In other words, when you do a mitzvah, you create an esratzon, and then take advantage of that esratzon by offering a tefillah. Another example. Women light the candles Friday night, and what do they do right after the mitzvah of lighting the candles? They daven for children, grandchildren, for neighbors, friends, for themselves. You do the mitzvah, lighting the candles, and follow it with davening. So you see this, this notion that you create the Yisratzah with the mitzvah, and you follow it up with a tefillah, comes from our very, our very Pasha. Okay, we have time for one last insight.
Let's skip all the way. We have the Tochacha. The Tochacha in our parsha. Tochacha appears in Bechukosai and Kisava, once in the singular, once in the plural. It applies to both. A beautiful Ramban. We don't have time to go through all of this. Oi! So much to talk about. Perachav Ches, go to the end of the parsha. Samach Vav, literally the very end of the parsha. Page 1084, 1084, where Perak Chav Ches, chapter 28, verse Samech Vav. And here the Torah tells us the following at the end of the Torah. And your life will hang in the balance. And you'll be frightened. You'll be frightened night and day, and you will not be sure of your livelihood. Part of the Torah, part of what the Torah predicts is that if you misbehave, if you are disobedient, if you don't listen and align your values, your lifestyle with that of what Hashem wants from us, then we will suffer the terrible tochacha. And in the tochacha, it describes to us that your life will hang in the balance, and you will be afraid night and day. Rav Soloveitchik writes about this the following, you'll be afraid night and day. Slaves live in fear. The Ibn Ezra asks why a camp of 600,000 Israelite men at the Red Sea were afraid when they saw they were being pursued by 600,000 chariots. B'nai Israel were so desperate they began to complain to Moshe. Why'd you take us out, bring us back? And the Ibn Ezra wonders why they despair. So the Ibn Ezra answers, the Jews were downtrodden and fearful. A slave is afraid even when his fear is unjustified. Fear is a mental illness. Fear is a plague. Fear is anxiety. And a slave is filled with such fear even when it is unjustified, even when it's unwarranted. Writes the Rav, he's afraid not only of those who are stronger than he, or of those who have jurisdiction over him. The slave is afraid of contradicting anyone, of antagonizing even a stranger. The fear might be unjustified, but it's the motivating force in his life. Indeed, many former inmates in extermination and concentration camps in Europe have told me, writes the Rav, that they were afraid not only of the commander of the camp, but of anyone, even a child. Such neurotic fear, unjustified or nonsensical, is described powerfully here in the Torah. The passage does not describe a disease, but an imagined fear. Phobias with no foundation in reality. Any testimony given before a court may involve contradicting and antagonizing somebody. One who is afraid to antagonize or contradict is disqualified from giving testimony. This is why the sages introduced Hesaba leaning on one's left side as a symbol of freedom. Hesaba symbolizes complete relaxation, manifesting relief from the abatement of tension and anxiety. Hesaba symbolizes the throwing off of the mental shackles, depriving man of the freedom of movement. Hesaba is the reverse of an erect posture which demonstrates obedience and submissiveness. Soldiers standing erect symbolize the readiness to obey. Hesaba is indicative of disobedience, of a courageous stand, of refusing to take orders. Fear is good in small doses, writes the Rav. In large doses, it's harmful. It's Gemara Git and Yud. A little is good because it manifests the normal vigilance of life. Too much is harmful because it exaggerates or pointless leads to a total insanity. Fear is the ultimate source of all neurosis and psychotic anomalies in man. Not for naught did the Torah make, us, make use of the punishment of fear. So fear, fear is a punishment, writes the Rav. Fear is a punishment. Fear is not healthy. Fear is unhealthy. I posted this morning in, in our Amuna WhatsApp group. You can join if you want for several times a week. We try to uh, offer inspiring thoughts. People misquote. You know the song, the entire world is a very narrow bridge. And the main thing is, the main thing is don't have any fear, but that's not the truth. You know where that song comes from? The words come from Reb Nachman, and there Reb Nachman writes, I think it's Tanina Nunches maybe, Reb Nachman writes, not he says the whole world is like a narrow bridge. And the main thing is, lo lehispached. He doesn't say lo lefached. He doesn't say don't be afraid. He says lo lehispached, don't make yourself afraid. 
Don't work yourself up in fear. Don't live with anxiety over what you can't control. The real message is not not to be afraid. It's not to make yourself afraid. Don't turn yourself into a sense of fear. Mark Twain once said, I've known a great many troubles, but most of them never happened. People work themselves up into a frenzy over that which they can't control. I've known a great many troubles, but most never happened. Stay calm, put your trust in Hashem, and know everything is for a reason. Don't get worked up and don't get upset. This is the theme and the essence of the beginning and the end of the parsha. two bookends. When you realize that it's all good, then you'll be filled, filled with a sense of joy. And if you fear, if you fear, that's a punishment. That's the tochacha having fear. Don't work yourself up into a frenzy. Don't work yourself up into a ball of fear. Submit to Hashem and express your gratitude to Him. There's a lot more to talk about, but we'll have to end here. Again, if you took any notes, I'd appreciate if you share them with me. If you're willing to take notes going forward, I'd appreciate if you'd let me know. I'd love to share written up some of these divrei Torah that we're offering once we offer them. I'd love to disseminate them in other ways. R-E-G at brsonline.org. Please join us tomorrow morning for... Mesilas Hasharim at 8.15, Living with Amuna at 8.45, and going behind the Bima tomorrow night at 9 o'clock. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay holy, have a great day.